Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anna Rasquat Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. In this episode, Donald B. McCormick, Callaway Professor Emeritus of Biochemistry at the School of Medicine of Emory University in Atlanta, talks about his life and career with Al Merrill, Professor and Smith Call Chair in Molecular Cell Biology at the Georgia Institute of Technology, and Barbara Bowman, Director for Science at the National Center for Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion in Atlanta, and Associate Editor of the Annual Review of Nutrition. Dr. McCormick explains his path from his childhood in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, to becoming an eminence on vitamins. I'm Al Merrill, Smith Gall Institute Chair of Molecular Cell Biology at Georgia Institute of Technology. In addition, Dom was my doctoral thesis mentor at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, and later my department chair at Emory University when I joined the faculty there. I'm Barbara Bowman with the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta and also with the uh, Annual Reviews of Nutrition. I'm an associate editor, and Don McCormick was my postdoc advisor at Emory University. So, Don, we're delighted to be here and have a chance to first give a brief biographical sketch about you and then to ask some questions about you through your career. During his career, his research focused on cofactors and enzymes spanning from the chemistry of these molecules through the biochemistry all the way to the nutrition and implications in disease. His specialty was in vitamin B6, riboflavin, biotin, and lipoate, as well as metal ions. But in addition to that, he was knowledgeable about all of the vitamins and cofactors. For essentially his entire career, Don McCormick was the go-to guy for any knowledge about vitamins, and I believe you probably still could be claimed to be the same. Barbara? Thanks, Don. What influenced you to become a scientist? What was it about Oak Ridge and family life and all the circumstances that brought you there that, that set you on this course? I really was set towards science when I was conscious in my mind when I was eight years old. And that Christmas, in my eighth year, my parents got me a ChemCraft chemistry set, uh, which was the best of the line at that point in time. Given that I'm 80 now, you can subtract and go back to when I was 8 in uh, terms of calendar year. But that really tweaked my interest. I knew my father was interested in science. He would take me and my younger brother uh, out in woods and explain what trees were there, what flowers. He knew fairly well about nature. He had taught high school biology and high school chemistry in a rather small rural school uh, in the fringes of Kentucky and Tennessee, not far from Clarksville, where my mother was born. Both father and mother were educators. They believed we should read. When we didn't know a word, they wouldn't stop and tell us what it was. It was, go to the dictionary and you'll see what it means and it will stick better, and it does. So educating uh, at home that came from parents, father in particular, as I'll mention too, really was a chemist, as he ended up chemist, chem engineer, working in the Oak Ridge Atomic Bomb Project during World War II. Uh, starting at eight and with ChemCraft chemistry sets, I built up a home laboratory. My brother, Alan, uh, third from oldest, I have, we're, I'm one of five siblings. 
Alan, when he was a high school student, would swipe some chemicals from the local drugstore in Buchanan, Virginia, and bring them home so Don could augment his chemistry laboratory. This grew until by time of Oak Ridge, when finishing elementary school, going to junior high, as it was then called, and high school, I turned a large linen closet and a D-type home in Oak Ridge, government constructed, into quite a laboratory in which I had pickles, snakes, birds' nests, uh, all kinds of natural items, <clears throat> in addition to a lot of things, both poisonous and explosive. So I was exposed to nature by the time of Oak Ridge and the compulsion to do science from my father, Kim Craft, into Abbott's, including aspects of nature. Uh, definitely uh, the growth in Oak Ridge was unusual and remarkable because it was, as our public might recall, at least older members, the place where a large number of scientists, engineers, technical people from around the world, not just our country, came in to turn their attention to this unique problem of fission, ultimately fusion as well, to make it into a bomb to end the war, World War II, in Japan at that time. It was successful in doing that with Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs that were built. Lots of people damaged and killed. Lots more that were estimated to have been the result if we hadn't used those bombs and had to invade the Japanese islands. So and for those that think what a horrible thing, yes, but it did at that time serve a purpose. My father being an expert in explosives, first nitrate made by the Haber process to make gunpowder in World War II, where we lived in Arlington, Virginia, then later on Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, which is a suburban area to Chattanooga. And there it was to make TNT for Hercules. And then the big call in 1943 to run up the road a bit to Oak Ridge and work on this very secret bomb project. My good fortune, Barbara, was having teachers really educated in subject matter, minimally in the theory of how you teach. The best teachers know what they're talking about. It's nice if they have a convivial spirit with their students of any age. But I had teachers with masters and often PhDs in subject matter. In my senior year, I won the National, uh, a National Westinghouse Science Scholarship. That was uh, after a day of testing, teachers' recommendations, uh, good people entering into it, academic background, that is grades in high school, and that sent me to Washington, where among 40 others, and me being one of the top dogs, we got to meet the president, we got to go to the Smithsonian, we got to go to the Bureau of Standards, the National Bureau of Standards. So this was further both inculcation and uh, elicited the feeling of really, this is exciting, it's fun to do things, fun to find out things, fun to learn. So what it, about your Vanderbilt day? The Vanderbilt experience was good teachers uh, in a select school, certainly one of the better then and now in the southeast of our country. Uh, it was an opportunity to not only add to what little I knew out of high school, but to meet some very interesting people. So how did you choose to stay with Oscar Towster? 
I went over to the medical school, which had a department of biochemistry. I thought this very appropriate would let me take my chemistry and math background into life and relevant science, biochemistry. This was the basis of molecular events in the human and otherwise, other organisms. Uh, and that was the come on to me, is that I could see the uh, need to understand the molecular functions of our body more than just physiologic, topologic uh, explanations. Oscar Tauster was the young professor who had just received the Theobald Smith Award, which is in medical circles, is the award given to a young investigator at the molecular level. Biochemistry it was then, now we would include cell and molecular biology and molecular genetics. But Oscar had won an award for his work in that area. He was, interestingly, uh, an essential pentasuric. That is a benign genetic defect where the person excretes a gram up to two or three grams of L-zylulose, a five-carbon sugar, in their urine every day. It was only a danger in that physicians, not knowing better, would call for an analysis out of their clinical laboratories and they would see it was a reducing sugar. So too is glucose. <laughs> and the danger was they'd be misdiagnosed as diabetic. My job, my PhD thesis under Oscar, an exciting new professor in the department, was figure out what the heck is wrong with this guy. <laughs> and I, working on the chemistry, by making isotopically labeled glycogen, that is giving pentoses and pentatols, five-carbon sugars like xylose, to animals such as rats, isolate, taking out their liver, extirpating the liver, getting out the glycogen, which is a polymer of glucose within the liver, um, degrading that down to the single molecules of glucose, and then atom by atom, looking where the label, the radioisotope, carbon in this case, C14, had gone. From this one can map back on pathways. We can ascertain what connected to what to get the label in those positions of glucose from glycogen built up from the pentose or pentatol. This was exciting because I could use chemistry to look at a biological uh, molecule derived from pathways, and that was fun. I was also looking at frequent assays of my own urine to study glucuronides, that is, compounds that otherwise would be toxic to our body. Some are hooked up with an acid form of glucose, glucuronic acid, that makes them more water-soluble and they can be part of excretory product via the urine. Uh, I'd actually found the answer to what medically is still called the direct and indirect Vandenberg reactions. Mm -hmm. This is to see whether a person that has jaundice, it's due to gallstones or to uh, damage to the liver cells. Mm -hmm. Very different things. A yellow fever will damage the liver and you'll get yellow because of the bile pigments like bilirubin that are there deposited. However, if you have a good healthy liver, you can tie up a lot with glucuronic acid and excrete it in your urine. That differential test is whether or not glucuronic acid is added to the structure of bilirubin. Mm -hmm. 
And just as I was finishing that part up, out comes a report in Science Magazine from a fellow Rudy Schmidt at NIH saying, that's it, you know, you have two hydroxyl groups, alpha pyrrolic structure, mono and diglucuronides can form. So I kicked that aside and finished with pentosis and penicillin. By the time of ending Vanderbilt, I had uh, taken my chemistry into biochemistry, into life chemistry. I had an opportunity at the end of my PhD of earning a bit of money uh, to pay my way, literally, to a postdoctoral position at a different university. So I went to Spain for tres meses, three months, and learned to speak Spanish pretty well, uh, could lecture at the University of Madrid, uh, and set up a biochemistry shop with other Americans, professionals that were sent together as a team, under the Marshall Plan, which was to aid countries we were trying to help recover from World War II. Uh, Francisco Franco was the leader. He took the benefaction of our State Department, Department of Public Health, uh, NIH being an aspect from that, and sent teams like we from the Interdepartmental Committee for Nutrition and National Defense. Catch the word nutrition, because that really pulled me more in that direction. My job as a young person, just post-PhD, was to help set up that lab and run vitamin assays. I assayed for vitamin C and beta-carotene, a precursor of vitamin A, uh, niacin, thiamine, riboflavin. The uh, time spent there not only let me become endeared by as well as endeared to me of a number of Spanish people, my corresponding colleague was a Frenchman who was a steroid biochemist, biochemist. So again, I warped into biochemistry and nutritional biochemistry from my beginnings in chemistry and math. Uh, the experience paid well. I saved my per diem. I ate sparsely of Spanish food, which was excellent, and received at the university. Came back, and that paid my way to Berkeley, along with the National Institutes of Health Postdoctoral Fellowship. I was number 43, I think, in our country to receive <laughs> such, which doesn't say how good I was, but it was a fairly new program. That sent me to Esmond Snell at Berkeley. Why Esmond? The chairman of biochemistry at Vanderbilt was Bill Darby. Really, he was an MD, PhD, full both, not combined, uh, who had done his biochemistry at University of Michigan, his PhD, synthesizing imidazoles, including histidine, an essential amino acid for some, out of ammonia and glucose. He had done some nice organic synthesis in his earlier days. He got interested in other problems like iron and so forth, more and more toward human nutrition. But uh, taking a course in nutrition within the medical school at Vanderbilt that I did, as well as my biochemistry and surrounding subjects, set me well to go to Esmond Snell. After all, if I worked with pentoses and pentatols, a vitamin called riboflavin, is really a compound with a pentatol side chain, a ribitol, a d-ribitol side chain. So, hey, that clicked. There's a polyol there connected to a big 
oxidation reduction structure. And uh, that's what evolved out of Esmond's lab because in the lab, as Dr. Merrill said, the job was to isolate enzymes and study their properties that converted the vitaminic B6 group, pyridoxine, pyridoxamine, and pyridoxal, into the single major functional coenzyme. Vitamins as such in the B complex, the larger water-soluble vitamin group, are not functional as you take them in. They have to be metabolized and converted to so-called coenzymes, which together with particular proteins become the holoenzyme, the catalytically functional entities that we must have. Reactions go along, but they have to go along fast enough to allow muscle contraction allow heartbeat as part of that, allow mental activity. These are catalyzed reactions, a catalyst being something that speeds up the reaction. With uh, Snell, then, it was working out the B6 kinase story. Later, the uh, forms that are phosphorylated, pyridoxine phosphate and pyridoxamine phosphate, they have to be oxidized further in a second step to make the coenzyme pyridoxal phosphate. So kinases and oxidase, yours truly uh, purified, characterized with very good people doing a lot of the work. Dr. Merrill, part of his thesis and part of his excellent early publications was working on these systems. Mm -hmm. Now what we call affinity purification, what I still hang up and call biochemically specific absorbent purification. After Snell's postdoctoral period, I picked up hence enzymology, Vitamins and coenzymes as part of cofactors that are essential. We must have them working in our body to live. That set me to look at something called flavokinase. The pentatol side chain of ribotol side chain isoaloxazine ring structure, a tricyclic structure. So off to Cornell I went with my first NIH grant to study, to first make sure there was such an enzyme. There was a real argument that maybe riboflavin, when we absorb it and it goes to our small gut, is it's phosphatase, because the reversal of a phosphatase is to put on a phosphate, and perhaps riboflavin was being phosphorylated by alkaline phosphatase in the gut wall. So thought Kunio Yagi and Japanese groups, and it was really dogma of the moment. Hmm. turned out to be wrong because there really is an enzyme that name first given by Edna Kearney, a good microbiologist in San Francisco that had uh, found a bacterial activity that seemed to be phosphorylating riboflavin. My question, is it in the mammal? Is it in the human? What are its characteristics? Well, what uh, was it like to be at Cornell in those days, and how did it, what, was, what was striking to you having come from, from a place like Berkeley? So I went to Cornell in the woods of Ithaca, New York, in the Finger Lakes, high above Cayuga's water, and nearly froze to death for 20 years, but I enjoyed it. It was a good school with a very mediocre little biochemistry department. Uh, in the Ag College that became Agriculture and Life Science while I was there, and it needed augmentation of faculty and mission. The same people in that little department were in the same building Savage Hall on the campus, still there, that housed the nutrition cadre <clears throat> oriented toward 
human nutrition. Most of them were there, the ones doing research. There were some over in home economics, now human ecology. There were some out in the ag college in different spots, food science departments and so forth. But this group of biochemists in Savage Hall, together with nutritionists, helped meld me into the nutritional biochemist I became. Dick Barnes was the dean, as he became, of that group, called the Graduate School of Nutrition. The biochemists were eventually uh, enlarged, uh, maintained membership in that group as well as with the nutrition people. Biochemistry eventually got its own building at the upper end of the ag campus called Wing Hall, which had housed dairy science before they mm -hmm. took out the ice cream making machines and milk churning things and turned it into a science productive biochemistry department. Cornell was a great period and where luckily we produced enough that good students, Al among them, would come to the lab, eventually some postdoctoral people, some visiting sabbatic professors like Helmut Siegel, his interest in coordination chemistry, inorganic, led me into metal ions, especially the Irving Williams series and those that are in our bodies and required, that are part of cofactors. So all of this gelled under the umbrella of cofactors. Vitamins that become coenzymes, some vitamins like D really are pro-hormones, uh, metal ions that are functional in iron, copper, zinc-dependent enzyme systems. Uh, those are all micronutrients. After the Cornell years, then you made a decision to add something else to your career in moving to Emory University. You want to tell us a bit about that? I went to Emory with two missions that were spelled out reasonably and well by the incoming president, Jim Laney. I knew the previous president because he was a friend of mine at Cornell, Sandy Atwood. He was a chairman of agronomy, that's a word for gentleman farmer, educated farmer, and became provost at Cornell, went to Emory to be a president. His successor was Jim Laney. Uh, Jim Laney uh, gave me the challenge of two things, if I didn't answer this that's earlier, right. which was, one, correct what's there, as humanely and legally and ethically as you can, it's pretty poor and it's pretty small. This was to try to talk people into greater activity, to offer some help if I could. And if they really had quit, think of early retirement. Five people were transited out of that department. And you lose a lot of sleep doing this. But it was a challenge and we succeeded. And then bring in bright people like you guys that could uh, be off and running if they got even a little help. And in the early days, it was just a little help. Now, there were other challenges there, and one reason they made me a dean for the basic sciences within the med school, starting the Department of Genetics. Uh, good colleague in pediatrics, Louis J. Elsis, just departed, uh, Skip Elsis, as he was known, uh, had been trained in genetics, human genetics, at uh, under the direction, really, of uh, Rosenberg and uh, appreciated the fact that these were biochemically based things and so forth. And we needed more genetics at Emory. So I, with very little prodding, tried to branch in that direction and help hire people. Uh, the two good additions to our department in terms of professional expertise were Doug Wallace, the godfather of mitochondrial DNA, 
But Doug Wallace, uh, who became a member of the National Academy of Science, Human Genetics, Mitochondrial DNA, and more recently Steve Warren that we hired. And I say we because not just the chairman hires people. He, he can be for it and exuberant and help push and make contact sometimes. But by then it was a department hiring, uh, in this case, a young man who was, again, human genetics, worked out the basis at molecular level of the fragile X syndrome, the most common cause of mental retardation in the human population, more than Down syndrome, which used to be called mongolism. And uh, he became a member of the Institute of Medicine and the National Academy. He's done very well. So genetics, Al, if this was partly in mine, mm-hmm. is one branch I, mm-hmm. I took to support. Also because of you, uh, heartily supported that we branch into this new group of nutrition and health sciences. Mm-hmm. But I say he's more the godfather than I am because he got down to the nitty-gritty and got good colleagues to join us out of medicine, out of public health. Mm-hmm. So branching into other areas was something I'm mm-hmm. sort of proud of, but... Uh, Proud of identifying people who could do the job. That's what a decent administrator is all about. Mm-hmm. One other thing I should mention, my colleague Jerry Sutton, who was chairman of what then first was the Department of Anatomy, then became Anatomy and Cell Biology and is now the Department of Cell Biology at Emory and the Medical School. Jerry foresaw the growth of conglomerate groups, uh, groups, conglomerate interest. Uh, of different types across departments and colleges. And I had the experience of being one of three who put together the first such uh, division of biological sciences at Cornell University. Bob Holly and uh, Adrian Serb somewhat, but Harold Shiraga, chairman of chemistry, helped. Uh, three of us really put together, got our deans to agree that it would serve their purpose, nothing taken away from them, especially for young faculty and for students, if we really are an institution that's supposed to be educating young people, to have the biochemist in poultry science, the one over here in chemistry, the one back there in the graduate school, to come together as sections of expertise within a division that cut across what I call dukedoms and fiefdoms, Mm -hmm. deans and their colleges and their schools. That succeeded at Cornell. Harvard copied us two years later with Jack Strominger coming down to see how we were doing it, a good biochemist. And when I went to Emory, that was still burning in my mind when we grew enough that we do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, My only uh, dissident view from Jerry Sutton as chairman of anatomy at that time was we need to do it, but let's get enough weight that it means something. Mm -hmm. We'll be nationally recognized. Those the two of us really put together Emory's uh, operating division of biological sciences, now well run by a department colleague, Keith Wilkinson, a ubiquitous biochemist. Uh, but I'm, I'm proud of that. I think that gets shuffled with successors of division chiefs, directors. But uh, that took a lot more work in politics than some remember. Well, so, I've noticed with a lot of what I would call great scientists, that although they may be known for a particular thing, when you sit down and talk to them about what were some of the more fun things that they worked on or they thought about, it's something off that path 
but it wasn't something that they could necessarily sell to colleagues because yeah. it wasn't in the mainstream of yeah. what was being looked at at that time. Um, and I remember when I had a good friend of mine, Chris Rates, who was a powerful scientist, right. visit Emory, and that was doing you know the real hot molecular biology stuff at the time. And he met with you. He came back and told me about how you were the most impressive scientist I've ever met <laughs> well, Chris because of the depth with which you had talked to him about the particular things that interested you. And he said, yeah. you know, this is a sign of a real scientist. They don't yeah. necessarily publish the topics that are hot in the latest issue yeah. of science, but they've got particular things that they want to drill down into deeply and in understanding nature. And again, it may be just something that's the yeah. part of their own curiosity. Uh, but related to that, I mean, are there some things that you're interested in telling us about now that you would say, this is something I had a lot of fun with. I'm a nature nut. I'd like to guard some of it. Part of my talking around that area is on conservation. Mm -hmm. I give a talk uh, coming up soon to a group about <clears throat> using E.O. Wilson, the famous professor at Harvard, who was a conservationist, an evolutionary biologist and conservationist. He wrote a, an article the bottleneck. He's describing what the human species has done to itself and the world. We're really running out of time in a lot of things. The set average lifetime for mammalian species is about 10 million years. Varying considerably, but most mammals have that span. He and I sort of hope that's the end of the human and we get a better species evolved in time. But aside from that sarcastic remark, the concept of conservation <clears throat> has always been with me because I like those little creatures out there. It's not just the two-legged, the bipedal predator arrogantly calling itself Homo sapiens, the human. That should be the decider of every other life form. Your interest in gardening is interesting because I remember as early as I recall working with you in vitamins, despite literally making all your career and your resources out of uh, out of them. You didn't try to flip that in any sort of commercial way to, no. to be a vitamin peddler, but rather you would always say that the best way to get your vitamins is by the mixture of foods that we provide them uh, in the adequate amount. So right. that, I guess, is also a bottom line of your yeah. philosophy on nutrition in general. This country, here are the facts, folks, suffers... Uh, Billions of dollars, recent estimate was $25 billion worth of money spent on supplements to their diet. Over $10 billion of that, Barbara can more correctly uh, adjust my numbers, but about $10 billion on vitamin mineral supplements. And so that raises the question, of, are they really needed? Are most people so poorly fed? and underfed often that they need. Well, heck, the real problem of Americans and many others in so-called developed nations are we eat too much, we're too fat. That's a big health problem, diabetes, chronic condition, heart disease, stroke, uh, reflections of um, that carried too far in latter life, later life. But this kick of vitamin minerals, we're constantly bombarded in TV, magazines, newspapers, talking heads and ad people that come out of a large industry to 
make you believe you need all these supplements. It is not necessary for most people. It's clear that we get as estimated and re-estimated more than enough of most of the micronutrients, the vitamins, the trace elements, so-called micronutrients. We're getting enough of these in most of the population from what they eat. In addition, our diet, and again, much of the developed nation's diet, we have fortified foods, fortified wheat, uh, flour, wheat ground up to which niacin and thiamin and riboflavin and now folic acid are added. So we're getting fortification of some foods on top of a wide variety of good available foods. Most people are surfeited by that. There are some that definitely need supplementation, no question. But there are not that many people out of the total population that do need medically advised supplements. There are some that get so damn much in pill popping and thinking they need so much that really push themselves toward problems in chronic high-level intake. There are uh, hypervitaminotic cases, too much of given vitamins. There are certainly toxic warnings that we should pay attention to about the minerals. Iron, hemochromatosis, and siderosis, uh, copper, uh, almost any of the trace minerals become quickly toxic if you do start taking large amounts. Yet they're compounded freely in some of these vitamin mixes. And it wasn't that long ago, as Barbara knows, that we had pediatricians telling mothers to give those vitamin chewing things and little drinks and uh, candy loaded with vitamin to kids, with over 16,000 of them becoming, uh, showing excess, uh, having health problems, and a few actually dying after hospitalization. So damage can be done by too much. Certainly, some do need supplements. Most can turn that uh, 10 billion or more per year in our country to better use. I suggest conservation, education. It must just be so ironic to you that these substances present at such low concentrations that took years and months of efforts and tons of foodstuffs to to isolate and purify, people now just swallow blithely. That's right. Um, I've lived from seeing the discovery of these essential-to-life cofactors uh, up to being part with good colleagues like the two of you in figuring out how they work and how much you need. And the bottom line to what we were digging into here is that the RDAs, Recommended Daily Dietary Allowances, and such numbers as are used, corresponding similar numbers in Canada and United Kingdom and most countries now, they're enough for most people. It's estimated that 97% or more are covered by those. And you easily get them from a mixed balanced diet. It doesn't take much. If you're going to do beer and pretzels all the time, yeah, you might need some help. Or if you have special absorption problems or metabolic faults, genetically based faults, uh, often uh, you need some help. But these are small numbers that need supplements. And I get very angry, I'll be honest to say, but colleagues who should know better but help promulgate this myth. One recent uh, issue of the 
annals of the uh, Journal of Internal Medicine, picking up on two individuals that come from the vitamin mineral industry, had this statement. Every adult should be taking one multivitamin at least per day. And if you're old, meaning now 65 or older, two multivitamins. There's no damn scientific evidence for that for the most people, you know, from 90% more. Uh, but it's that pushing, those constant ads. You need your caltrate. Now, come on. This uh, constant bombardment, it's not surprising. I don't blame most of the public. They're not trained in these areas. But I damn well blame physicians who should be learning more, though they take brief little courses in biochemistry. Very few even have nutrition courses as they go through med school. Mm -hmm. They are pushing a wasteful business, to say the least, in my opinion. I got only two, no, three little uh, suggestions back on my last manuscript, which is in press, Advances Nutrition. It is on the subject of vitamin and mineral supplements for the elderly. Those over 65 and over is demographically defined today. And one of them was, he needs to learn to write more clearly. <laughs> uh, the other two were minor things like, did I have to mention that the two who suggested that these older people take two multivitamins a day? Uh, those two people came from the industry that turns out vitamin mineral supplements. I don't say that they're entirely wrong for some people, but clearly there's a bias there. It's like we require the political parties to identify when they put out ads attacking the other candidate, whether it's Democrat or Republican sponsored. I think we should do that, really, when it comes to some of these public health pronouncements, uh, that they be identified. doesn't mean they're rascals. They, they can have greater knowledge of what's there and available, cost reasonability and so on. But much of it fits into the category of American greed, and I'd like to see it identified. Uh, well, at another level, I think scientists, too, are pressured, especially with the tightness of funding these days and the requirement to publish in so-called highly cited peer-reviewed journals to try to overhype yeah. what may be concluded from the data in their particular papers so Absolutely. that it... it somehow looks like it's filtering to the top yeah. and will be more competitive. And the training that you gave your students was that the everything that you say in the paper should be completely defensible yeah. by what you present in the data right. or what you conclude from it. You're allowed in the discussion to speculate That's in the right. state is clear speculation, clear speculation beyond that. That's right. But not to try to pull over the wool over the eye of the reader to say you can definitively conclude this thing over here yeah. that the data yeah. is nowhere near adequate to be able to do that. And as a result of that, you, you get a second benefit of taking the um, writing style that you promulgated, which is that you can go back later and look at things that you wrote 10, yeah. 20, 30 years before, and everything that you say to them is equally true today and how one would look at that data as yep. with respect to what you would conclude from it. Yep. Other things may have been added to it and there may yep. be shifts in yep. the total picture of the science, but one would read that same paper and say, I would read it, look at that data and hmm. give exactly the same conclusions to it. Oh, that's today. a wonderful point. I think the very process of acquiring grants, including for biochemists, the largest 
funding agency is still our National Institutes of Health, and the National Science Foundation helps some as well, and a few others uh, with even public funding largesse. But they drive the uh, person who's applying for that funding mm. into this hyperbole of mm. why it's relevant. It may help answer the question of cancer and so forth. And you're as well or better at knowing that than I am. Uh, but it sets the wrong thing. It means you really have to prostitute yourself a little bit to get the money. And that leads to the habit. And the hyperbole continues all the way down the line. Uh, that, that's a, a poison within our system. I don't know how you correct it. One of your other grad, former graduate students, Peter Bruch, yes. once wrote a thing that's a summarizing, a little bit whimsical, called his brilliant career. Yeah. But there's parts of it that are serious, too. Yeah. And the serious yeah. part that he wrote was, <clears throat> what did I learn from Don McCormick? <laughs> and it said that the faculty member role model should be create the, an environment, assemble the troops, prepare, prepare, excuse me, I'll say it again, provide care and feeding, Give them direction, set a good example, show them a few things, but let them teach each other. Juggle multiple duties, teaching, research, publication, editorial activities, grant applications, grant review, administration, <laughs> and being a good scout in general. The, the closing statement, I think, is the most telling. He says, now we require formal teaching and responsible conduct of research and careers. That is what's often now said. We have to teach our students in some formal manner. But his closing is, back then it was just being part of Don's lab. (laughs) You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquat Paz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>